Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On September 9, 1999, Australian police officers swarmed the small town of Heliden. They'd been there for two days, ordered to watch the property of Deborah Gileski around the clock. The 46-year-old leader of the Magnificat Meal Movement religious group had long claimed that she saw apparitions of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. But recently, one of her visions was so dark, it had sparked a panic in the community. She'd seen her own body dragged from a building, tied to sticks, and set ablaze by a priest. She'd even told some followers that September 9, 1999, was the day she would die. Rumors of an imminent mass suicide in the community spread like wildfire, sparking comparisons to Waco and Jonestown. No one knew what was really happening in Heliden, but people talked anyway. Journalists and TV crews closed in on a single corner of the private property, hoping to get an inside look, but it was easier said than done. No one would be able to capture what was going on behind the closed doors. Whatever it was, Deborah Gileski didn't want the public to know. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we're tracking the rise of Australian-born religious leader Deborah Gileski. Through her Magnificat meal movement, she allegedly collected millions of dollars from her followers in the 1990s and 2000s. In this episode, we'll explore how Deborah got her start, spreading news of her divine visions in Catholic parishes across Australia. In time, she would devote herself to finding a promised land for her congregation and monopolize an entire town in the process. Next week, we'll follow Deborah's inevitable fallout with the Catholic Church and her efforts to escape the law. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. 
At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Looking at the empire Deborah Gileski eventually built for herself, it's easy to assume she was brilliant, persuasive, or strategic. Amassing a following of hundreds or thousands is no small feat. And it's possible Deborah was all of those things. But when it comes down to it, the Magnificat meal movement's success was really about timing. When Deborah founded her group in the 1990s, the Catholic Church's credibility was under fire. Across the U.S., England, and Australia, Catholics were questioning their faith, and Deborah saw that as an opportunity. Here was a group of people who wanted something to believe in, someone they could trust. Deborah wanted to be that person. Born in Melbourne, Australia on June 17, 1953, Deborah Gileski was the eldest of four girls in a middle-class Catholic family. Sunday Mass was an inevitable weekly affair, as it was for many people in their community. Deborah's father even helped build the local church. But though she was raised to be devout, Deborah's faith, like that of many others, may have been challenged in the 1960s. It was a time of great change for the Catholic Church. Between 1962 and 1965, Pope John Paul XXIII held a series of meetings with higher-ups among the clergy to revise official church doctrine. These gatherings were known as the Second Vatican Council. The Pope felt that the Church needed to update its practices to accommodate a new generation of believers, but the changes weren't always welcomed by conservative Catholics. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to researchers Janet Call and Bernard Doherty, some Catholics reacted to the Second Vatican Council by calling for a return to tradition in the church. They saw their faith as something stable, eternal even. It wasn't supposed to change. Call and Doherty wrote, many self-identifying conservative Catholics, both within and outside the church, have also blamed Vatican II for the incursion of various liberal attitudes into the church especially in terms of the morality of priests. Deborah grew up right in the midst of this turmoil, and though she continued to identify as Catholic, she must have been aware of the changing tide. It may have even inspired her to get more involved in the church herself. By the early 1980s, Deborah and her husband, Gordon Gileski, had moved to Melbourne. There, Deborah found work at St. Bernadette's Primary School as acting principal, and in her mind, she was the best thing that ever happened to the students. According to Deborah, while she was in charge, vandalism, delinquency, and absenteeism dropped as the Holy Spirit breathed fire into the school. It was a bold statement for her to imply she was responsible for divine intervention at an elementary school. While the Catholic Church does believe in miracles, it sees them as works of God, either directly or through saints. Deborah was no saint, but she did have great timing. Because around this time, there was an influx of people claiming to feel the Holy Spirit. In 1981, a group of children in the town of Medjugorje, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, saw a luminous woman with a child in her arms at the top of a hill. Without asking, they immediately knew it was the Blessed Mother, the Virgin Mary. 
In the days that followed, Mary revealed important messages to the children. Soon, droves of people went to the same spot, hoping Mary would appear to them too. After that, a statue of her was erected in the town. Christians treated the hilltop like a holy site, making pilgrimages to see it in person. The trek ignited a new kind of religious passion for Catholics. It brought miracles to average people. Some pilgrims claimed that their terminal illnesses were healed after visiting the holy site. Deborah was likely swept up in the sudden public interest in mysticism. Perhaps she thought that the Catholic Church needed a female leader praising a sacred woman to bring them into the new decade. In the market of belief systems, the Blessed Mother was in high demand, and Deborah wanted a piece of the pie. So she tried to create her own religious group. She claimed the organization was created in collaboration with St. Bernadette's parish priest, Father Eaton. But it's more likely that she only briefly consulted Father Eaton about her ideas, then exaggerated his actual support. After all, Father Eaton was an important figure in the community. His approval would make Deborah's group seem more legitimate to potential recruits. Deborah was leveraging tactics that psychologist Herbert Kelman describes in his social influence theory. His research investigated the factors that cause conformity in people. He wrote that this happens through compliance, identification, and internalization. Through these three steps, it becomes easy for the average person to accept a set of rules or ideas if they're influenced by someone they identify with and believe to be credible. This influencer often supports ideologies people already subscribe to, like a particular legal system or a religion. Deborah wanted to borrow some of Father Eaton's credibility so that other people would find her visions more convincing. Not only did she claim that she had the Father's support, she also started telling people she had a special spiritual relationship with the priest. Father Eaton denied this, and it doesn't seem like Deborah's group gained any traction. Soon, she moved on from St. Bernadette's. Instead of looking for another principal job, she and her husband tried their hand at real estate, but they weren't cut out for the industry. By the early 1990s, the two were nearly bankrupt. In desperation, Deborah turned to a prayer group at Our Lady Help of Christians in Brunswick, a suburb of Melbourne. Also around this time, she became interested in charismatic Catholic practices like spiritual healing and visions. She became fascinated by the pilgrimage site at Medjugorje. There was just one problem. At her new church, Deborah couldn't rely on a priest to validate her authority like she had with Father Eaton. She needed endorsement from a much higher source. She needed to go all the way up to the heavens. Deborah started claiming to be like a prophet. She said she was receiving messages and visions directly from Jesus and the Virgin Mary. We don't know exactly what these figures told her, but Deborah insisted she had regular interactions with the divine. Convinced of her holiness and her connection with the Virgin Mary, she decided to formally name her teachings. She started to call her group the Magnificat Meal Movement, or Triple M. Typically, Deborah has claimed she thought of the name herself, but at least one person close to the matter credited another parishioner, named Donna Hoyne, with the title. Either way, the term meal referred to the Eucharist. In Catholicism, this tradition honors the transformation of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ through the blessing of a priest. When Catholics eat these sacraments, they believe they're acknowledging that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. In Deborah's group, however, there was a strong focus on the Virgin Mary. At one point, Triple M claimed Mary should be celebrated as co-redeemer of the world, 
basically on par with Jesus Christ. While the Catholic Church does revere Mary, she's not considered a god. Deborah's group blurred the distinction. The rest of Magnificat meal movement is a little easier to grasp. Magnificat is Latin for magnifies, and to the Catholic Church, it means my soul magnifies the Lord as the Virgin Mary's did. It is also the name of a well-known Catholic prayer, sometimes called the Prayer of Mary. Once she had her movement, Deborah was off to the races. She started recruiting parishioners at Our Lady Help of Christians, spouting her own interpretations of the Bible and its teachings. That didn't go over too well with the parish priest, Father Vic Ferruja. Deborah's sermons veered on blasphemous. More than that, Father Vic noted that her constant visions were becoming phantasmagorical. He urged Deborah to disband her movement. But she was just starting to gain followers. In her mind, stopping wasn't an option. If Father Vic wouldn't support her, she'd make him irrelevant. One report claims Deborah wanted to wage war with the priest. But she didn't actually have much ammunition. Her battle tactics were petty and passive-aggressive instead. Probably because she was such an active member in the church, Deborah helped organize mass services there. It was a job with a relatively small amount of authority, but it seemed that she leveraged it as much as possible to hit back at Father Vic. Suddenly, he was excluded from some of the services. Other priests were assigned to lead them instead. She did everything she could to reduce his reach from the pulpit. But Father Vic ran the show there, not Deborah. In response to her meddling, he simply swept her aside and put someone else in charge of planning services. Deborah was irate. According to another member of the parish, during a mass led by Father Vic, she allegedly stood up and mimicked his words and gestures like a child in an attempt to humiliate him. Then she walked down the center aisle of the sanctuary, punching the air and announcing, I've won the battle, I've won the battle. It may have been her last mass at Our Lady Help of Christians. She soon left the parish, but she would soon set her sights on a new one. Coming up, the Magnificat Meal Movement takes on a life of its own. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the podcast series, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican, to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD, and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By 1992, 39-year-old Deborah Gileski was dedicated to making her Magnificat meal movement a success. She started hosting regular Triple M meetings to communicate with her followers. She'd managed to win over several families before she was pushed out by the head priest at Our Lady Help of Christian's Church. But she craved more. If she really wanted to solidify her position as a divine prophet, what she really needed was a more compliant priest. She seemed to find one in Father Thomas de Souza of the Salesian Congregation. Deborah claims he had a strong hand in her early movement, acting as her spiritual director for three years and writing the introductions to some of her books. But de Souza says that's a total exaggeration. He had a friendly association with Deborah and attended several of her Triple M meetings but never accepted her claims about divine visions. That didn't matter to Deborah. She used D'Souza's name anyway, forging his endorsement in Triple M promotional materials. She was never afraid to take a little creative license. Even in her spiritual diaries, she wrote several with the intention of publishing them as religious texts for her devotees, revealing many of her visions and divine messages inside. Essentially, they amounted to a first-hand account of her journey as a divine prophet. But people who know Deborah find some of it to be exaggerated. One diary even mentions that she saw angels as early as her childhood, an assertion her father found hard to believe. But back in the early 90s, he wasn't around to call her out. And no one else really did either. It's likely that most of the folks in Deborah's life didn't know much about her past. This left her free to make things up as she went along. By 1993, Deborah decided she'd gotten all she could out of Father D'Souza and his flock. She and her husband Gordon moved to Toowoomba, Queensland. There, she quickly got to work, spreading her prophecies and hosting regular prayer services at her home. Her popularity grew by word of mouth. She also visited parishes across Toowoomba, making sure everyone knew her face her movement started to pick up steam. Then on June 17, 1993, her 40th birthday, she reported a new vision. She claimed the Lord appeared to her and gave her an image of the Virgin Mary to be copied and circulated throughout the world. This would apparently lead to many conversions and healings. Deborah eagerly produced an illustration of what she'd been shown. The result was strange, to say the least. The finished product looked a lot like Deborah's own face had been plastered on the Virgin Mary's body. Her entire movement was centered around devotion to the Holy Mother. Now it was as if Deborah Gileski and the Virgin Mary were one and the same. Yet her followers didn't seem to object to the image. They'd come to like and trust Deborah. There's something so inviting about her. She was joyful on the pulpit and smiled constantly. To them, she was almost a vision of the Holy Mother. This way of thinking is a prime example of the halo effect, a form of cognitive bias. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but as a refresher, when someone has one really obvious positive trait, it's easier to assume that they have lots of positive traits. In short, Deborah just seemed like a good, happy person in general. So people thought, 
maybe she was also divine. This was a key moment in Deborah's movement. Up to that point, she'd presented herself as a Catholic leader, endorsed by at least one priest. Triple M was cast as a group within Catholicism, still faithfully rooted in the tenets of the church. However, grafting her face onto the Virgin Mary's body was clearly crossing a line. It was the first step in Deborah making the movement her own religion, where she was the sole authority, and there were more to follow. As her ranks started to swell, Deborah slowly introduced new practices for her members to follow. One of them mashed together Catholic traditions of fasting with Jewish traditions of Passover. Traditionally, Passover commemorates the Jewish people's freedom from slavery in Egypt. Some foods are avoided, like leavened bread. Others are specifically served during the holiday, each representing an important part of the Exodus. One of them is haroset, a mixture of chopped fruit, nuts, and wine. Typically, the sweet paste represents the mortar used on the bricks that Jews laid for the pharaoh before their liberation. Deborah incorporated the food into her new sacred dish, which she called karoset. It was her own recipe that added pita bread, which would not be allowed in a Passover meal. As a part of her new religious practice, Deborah and her followers would spend the day fasting, then indulge in karoset. She had created a new food-centered tradition that departed from Catholic teachings. Eventually, Deborah started saying that she fasted year-round. She only ate the Eucharist, except on the 33 days a year when God allowed her to return to a normal diet. To her followers, it made her seem pious and disciplined. Here was a woman so full from the body of Christ that she was able to live without proper nourishment. What they didn't see were the snacks hidden beneath her cupboard. She wasn't really fasting like she claimed. And when she was confronted about her fasting by journalists a few years later, Deborah denied it. She told the Sydney Morning Herald, I eat every day of the week like everybody else. Still, claims like this brought in several hundred followers to the Triple M movement. And as the numbers rose, Deborah no longer had to hop from parish to parish or host gatherings at her home. Not long after moving to Toowoomba, she settled down at a local church called Holy Name and led a weekly devotional service. It was a feeding ground for her movement. Here, Catholics outside of Triple M could learn more about her mission, surrounded by her loyal followers in the audience. Given what we know about Deborah's later actions, it's likely that she collected donations during her events at Holy Name. If that is the case, then no one knew exactly how much money she was bringing in, but it was likely a sizable amount. And Deborah also made it a point to form ties with the church's leading priest, Father Tom Keegan, possibly to keep him from asking too many questions. Thanks to her influence, mass attendance skyrocketed, especially on the first Saturday of every month, which Deborah emphasized as a crucial time for devotions. After service, she would lead a group of her followers from the church up a hill called Tabletop, where she had erected a cross. As scholar Mike Gard points out, it was essentially a condensed version of the Medjugorje pilgrimage, which we mentioned earlier. Like she'd done with the Karoset, Deborah transformed an established religious idea to suit her needs. And she continued tacking on new traditions and practices like this as her movement grew. Each one was reportedly a direction from the divine. And every parish that hosted her was a gift from God, for a time. But Deborah couldn't sustain her relationships with Holy Name Parish, nor Father Tom Keegan. 
According to one report, when the priest asked her to be transparent about the donations she was collecting in his church, Deborah refused, which may have been an indication of just how much money she was raking in. By the end of 1995, she decided she'd recruited everyone from the Holy Name Parish who would join her movement. Toowoomba itself became old territory to her. She'd already conquered it. She wanted new markets. And this time, she wasn't keeping the Triple M contained to Australia. Perhaps, she thought, it was time to go global. Coming up, Deborah makes her group international and seeks out a promised land. Now, back to the story. By the mid-1990s, Deborah Gileski had amassed an estimated 400 followers in Australia. Now she was ready to bring her Magnificat meal movement overseas. In spring of 1995, she scheduled a trip to Ireland. Not only was it home to a huge population of Catholics, but they loved the Virgin Mary there. Deborah was able to connect with a specific group of believers who were as enamored with Medjugorje as she was. And once again, she had great timing. The authority of the Catholic Church was facing major criticism in Ireland. A man had come forward, claiming to be a survivor of child sex abuse by a priest. He would be the first of many. As the Irish press covered his case, Deborah had the perfect chance to swoop in and offer an alternative. Throughout 1995, Deborah traveled from parish to parish in Ireland, hosting events, and she wasn't above using a little manipulation to create a memorable entrance. According to one attendee, she made the congregation wait for nearly an hour before arriving late. When she finally took the stage, the audience roared, satisfied and relieved after the long delay. It was an effective strategy. According to author and science writer Deborah Halber, anticipation of a reward signals the release of the brain's dopamine, a happy neurochemical. Just being made to wait for something can make us feel more positive when it finally arrives. And that wasn't all. After at least one of her speeches, Deborah invited members of the crowd to share a meal with her, a rare event for a woman that claimed to fast year-round. Attendees happily sat down to eat with the religious leader before they'd even fully accepted Triple M's beliefs. If the audience members were skeptical after her speeches, the dinner was the perfect chance to win them. The events allowed her to look potential followers in the eye and have a meaningful conversation with them. Though her antics didn't convince everyone, her trip to Ireland was an overall success. It brought a surge of new devotees to the Triple M. Confidence bolstered and pockets flush with donations, Deborah returned home to Australia and focused on fulfilling one of her divine messages. She moved to the small town of Helidon to build a headquarters for her movement. She wanted all of her followers to move to the town and take it over. The whole place would be centered around Triple M and Deborah. By December of 1995, two of the families in her group purchased an abandoned Catholic school building called Mary's Mount, situated behind a Catholic church. Deborah moved in at the end of the year. The parish and its guiding priest couldn't have foreseen what was coming. Over the next three years, Triple M followers migrated to Helidin in droves. Between 40 and 50 families moved to the area, while others simply visited as a sort of pilgrimage, similar to Medjugorje. Busloads packed with people made the long trek. 
Except instead of traveling to the sacred site where the Blessed Virgin had appeared, they were traveling to see Deborah. People came from all over the world to hear her speak. Members of the Triple M built a sacred shrine dedicated to the Virgin Mary. Deborah led her followers there every first Saturday after their mass. It was one of the places where Deborah claimed to have her visions. For many, the spot felt powerful. One former follower remarked, I have been to many of Our Lady's shrines, Lord three times, Nock many times, Guadalupe several times, Medjugorje six times, and have received many wonderful graces at these places. But I can say with absolute conviction that the Marian shrine where I have most intensely experienced God's presence and loving embrace is Heliden on each of my six visits. This experience wasn't unique. Lots of people felt they were experiencing miracles in Heliden that hadn't been seen since biblical times. Their faith had been reawakened by Deborah's visions. Some thought they were just as much a part of Jesus' story as those written about in the New Testament. But life was not a God dream for everyone. When she wasn't sermonizing, Deborah and her husband put their past real estate experience to good use, encouraging their followers to buy most of the houses and many commercial properties in town. They also asked the devotees to give the Magnificat Meal Movement part ownership of these buildings. Deborah said that was God's will. She claimed that Jesus and the Virgin Mary specifically chose each property for Triple M followers and guided Deborah to create each real estate contract. Once the town was infiltrated by the Triple M, the Heliden locals either converted, left, or faced discrimination. For business owners who did stick around, but resisted joining up with Deborah and her followers, profits dropped. One shopkeeper was selling a particular pornographic magazine that Deborah didn't approve of, so members of the Triple M weren't allowed to buy anything from his store. And her control didn't stop there. When folks wanted to start a new business in town, they had to bring the idea to her first, even if they weren't part of her group. Only her faithful followers were allowed to put up signs that identified their affiliation with the Triple M community. Those were the most frequented spots in town. Apparently, because of this system, some businesses stayed empty, even when people wanted to rent them. This was all part of Deborah's monopoly, her golden city, her empire. But her influence wasn't completely unchecked. In 1996, the Magnificat Meal Movement was challenged by Bishop William Morris of Toowoomba. He issued a public statement that the Triple M was a private movement sponsored and founded by Deborah Gileski. In other words, she was not endorsed by the Catholic Church. That might not seem like a very dramatic statement, but it was somewhat unique. Despite her contentious past with several priests, no Catholic authority had publicly proclaimed that Deborah's teachings were contrary to those of the Church or that she wasn't allowed to spread her message. That was until Bishop Morris. The potential backlash probably worried her. She was still selling the Triple M as a movement within Catholicism. A lot of her followers may have considered themselves devout Catholics first. They might not actually abandon their Catholic faith to follow her. So Deborah labeled Bishop Morris as a detractor. In the meantime, she dangled a carrot to keep her followers committed a new revelation. Apparently, God told Deborah that Heliden was the New Jerusalem and ordered the construction of a basilica. 
A basilica is typically a large church building designated by the Pope and used for mass in addition to ceremonious events. Some of the world's basilicas serve as pilgrimage sites, bringing in millions of visitors per year. Perhaps Deborah thought that a basilica in Helidon would prove that the Magnificat meal movement belonged to the Catholic tradition. But from a purely logistical standpoint, it would take years to bring to reality. The planning and expertise were completely beyond Deborah's scope. Still, when she made the announcement, her followers were thrilled. They imagined a new place of worship that would grow the movement even further. So when Deborah had told them the project would cost a whopping $40 million, they happily handed over their money. One couple alone donated 100,000 Australian dollars toward the Basilica. Deborah was making money hand over fist. By this point, she'd reportedly amassed 38,000 followers worldwide. However, that number was provided by Ray Burke, one of the Triple M's most devout members, so it's likely he exaggerated. But it wasn't beyond the scope of imagination that Deborah's movement had reached the thousands. The Triple M had grown to an empire. She and her husband owned at least 11 properties in Helidon, some of which were businesses run by her followers. Deborah had practically claimed ownership of an entire town. She felt like she was in control of everything, especially her followers. She began to call her acolytes slaves of the Eucharist, or slaves for short. They dressed in monochrome blue or red outfits, like nuns. In addition, she decided that all slaves needed to live apart, with married couples separated by gender. This near celibacy put a strain on relationships, but the members followed whatever Deborah's vision said because they thought the Virgin Mary would bestow blessings upon them. To outsiders, it seemed like Deborah's followers lost a piece of themselves in Triple M. The local priest, Father John Ryan, reported that her followers did not think anymore. Their personalities had become cramped, and many were not physically well. Still, most of her followers were fully invested by that point. They had built lives in Helidin and believed it to be a holy place. Deborah may have been a bit much sometimes, but she was still their connection to the divine. Her behavior may have even caused some of her devotees to develop an insecure attachment to her. According to social psychologist Alexandra Stein, when we're frightened, we don't simply run away from the fear, but to a safe haven, to someone. But when the supposed safe haven is also the source of the fear, then running to that person is a failing strategy, causing the frightened person to freeze, trapped between approach and avoidance. Several of Deborah's followers reported experiences like this. Researcher Mike Gard, who wrote a comprehensive study of the Triple M, explains, My interviews with ex-members indicate that they were so affected they did not even want to give their names. I came away from conversations feeling as if the core of their being had somehow been violated. In an episode of Current Affair by the Daily Mail, one former member claims she was brainwashed. Though her movement had been slowly diverging from Catholic tradition, Deborah still wanted official recognition from the Church. She hoped mystical researcher René Laurentin could help. René Laurentin was a priest and French theologian who spent his life studying apparitions of the Virgin Mary. At the end of 1996, 43-year-old Deborah convinced him to visit Helidon. She may have wanted him to evaluate her claims and prove once and for all that her Magnificat meal movement was not Catholic heresy. 
Deborah had no doubt she'd be able to convince Laurenta of her legitimacy. No one could refute the feelings of divine joy they felt in Haladin. But she would soon learn that he wasn't the senile pushover she expected. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Deborah Gileski and the Magnificat Meal Movement as mass suicide rumors spread and Deborah gets involved in multi-level marketing. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells and Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 